โมตัสสะภะคะวะทัวรหัตัวสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนโมตัสสะภะคะวะทัวรหัตตัวสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนโมตัสสะภะคะวะทัวรหัตตัวสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะพุทธังมังสังขังนมัสสะAnd taking the eight precepts and as, a, as a training, and the traditional form that human beings have been engaged in for many centuries, and following what the Buddha himself set up in 2,600 years ago, and that's what we see. That's the outer. Appearance, but as anybody genuinely on the spiritual path would know, that's the surface level of what's going on. What's really going on, what's actually happening, is of a different dimension. Sometimes it's obviously true that spiritual conventions, or sometimes people refer to as religions. Become overly distracted by the forms and too much emphasis on the structures and traditions, and, and it is therefore important that we, from time to time, do stop and really check: Do we know what we're doing here by using these conventions? What's our intention? What's our understanding? And, In essence, this ceremony this evening is a statement on Jonathan's part, in this case, of an intention to engage in inner training, training of consciousness, and training of the heart, using religious language again, in keeping with the teachings given by the Buddha. There's many different. Teachers throughout the millennia, and, but if you find the teachings of the Buddha make sense, you align yourself with these teachings. But just going through the form and saying "I go for refuge to the Buddha," that's that's just like the handshake in a relationship. That's just the introduction. That's we need to be quite clear about that. That's not the relationship itself, but it's important in terms of our showing respect and helping us feel aligned with the lineage, with the tradition, with the convention, with those many, many millions of other suffering, confused human beings who, like us, uh, find they have a feeling of conviction of the validity of the Buddhist teachings. 
But again, in, in, in essence, this going for refuge to the Buddha is a willing submitting of ourselves to uh, training, an inner training, a discipline of attention. And it's distinctly different from other dimensions in our lives. And we, of course, the material dimension, finding food and clothing, shelter and medicine or livelihood, these things are all, of course, relevant, but there's much more to life than that. We would all be, of course, aware of people who are very wealthy and fortunate and have lots of food, clothing, shelter, medicine, but not particularly contented. There's much more to life than the material dimension. The spiritual, what we refer to as the spiritual dimension, is a different kind of effort. And so what Jonathan is publicly stating this evening is his intention to commit himself to this particular activity of training the heart, training consciousness, working directly with awareness itself. It's like you might know how to use your hands and fingers for working on a keyboard, but that doesn't mean to say that you know how to play a piano. You're still using your hands and fingers, but when you come to play a piano, that's a very different discipline. And likewise, we know how to use our attention to secure ourselves with food, clothing, shelter, medicine, and look after our material needs. But when it comes to disciplining attention inwardly, different rules apply. It's a different sort of task. Likewise, this discipline of attention applied inwardly on the spiritual dimension, the spiritual frequency, it's very, very different. We can bang a computer keyboard with any degree of force and still get our document typed up. But if you relate to the keys of a piano like that, well, it makes a very big difference. It could sound beautiful or it could sound very unpleasant to listen to. So this application of effort that we call the spiritual journey, this inner work, not everybody these days pays attention to it anymore, but of course... All of us here recognize the validity of it and do pay attention to it. And on an occasion like this where somebody is making a formal statement of their commitment to the refuges and precepts, it's worth stopping and reminding ourselves or reflecting again, do we really know what we're committed to? What does it mean to go for refuge to the Buddha? For many people, their whole world, their whole life, all their energy goes into paying attention to the six sense objects, sight, sound, smell, taste, touches, and mental impressions. That's, that's their existence. Well, they see, hear, smell, taste, touch, and think. That's all that matters. For somebody on the spiritual journey, certainly committed to the Buddha's teachings, it's, it's a shift of emphasis it's not denying the sights, sounds, smells, states, touches, and mental impressions, but it's a shift of emphasis to paying closer attention to that which knows the awareness itself. The sense objects, they're like specks of dust, but what about the space that those specks of dust are floating through? Do we know that space? Can we identify that dimension? That's 
the work that we're doing and the shift away from being primarily committed to manipulating sense objects to being primarily interested in the quality of awareness in which all those sense objects are arising and ceasing that's a big shift that's in Buddhist speak it's the difference from going for refuge to the world which is the world of the six sense objects to going for refuge to awareness itself to the heart to the Buddha the Buddha is that completely purified awareness that awareness that is completely free from all obstructions so as I was saying for many people and, and for all of us I'm sure in the earliest stage of life we, we were primarily invested in manipulating the sight, sound, smells, taste, touches and mental impressions and we sought a sense of security in our relationship with these experiences we became aware in the early stage of life that there are agreeable and disagreeable experiences <sighs> liking and disliking we call it our preferences and it is the case that again for many people all their energy goes into manipulating preferences and as we were just chanting just now in the Dhammachakampuatana Sutta it's very tiring and ultimately unproductive mm-hmm. but that's not the only choice the Buddha did identify the alternative which he referred to as the middle way which is the way of cultivating awareness itself mm-hmm. instead of seeking security instead of seeking identity instead of seeking a refuge in our relationship with the sense objects what we're interested in doing is paying attention to awareness itself what is the quality of our relationship with awareness is awareness contracted obstructed is it distorted with clinging open, receptive, clear these are the questions that we ask if we're going for refuge to the Buddha Buddhang Saranankachami working on the heart level itself the six sense objects they're always there the sight, sound, smells, taste, touches and mental impressions and various degrees of refinement or coarseness including all of our views and opinions the mental objects they, they don't go away but if you're on the path of awareness then we manage that dimension that frequency by taking the precepts set very clear boundaries and that takes care of the senses and the sense objects that's sorted it doesn't mean to say that suddenly all the sensory world becomes agreeable or disagreeable it just is what it is but we manage it by making clear in our own hearts and minds that these are the boundaries we don't cross And, and the more pressure you want to put yourself under the more refined you can make your precepts and so today Jonathan taking eight precepts and formally and putting himself under some pressure to, no more playing video games or chess or going dancing or listening to music or 
eating in the evening. Not that these gestures of renunciation are moral statements as such, but they simplify life and in so doing they increase the pressure. Because of what? Because we're interested in the quality of awareness. What is it that we do that turns life into a struggle? The Buddha and the realized disciples all lived in this world just as we do, but they didn't struggle. They still experienced the six sense objects, sight, sound, smells, taste, touches, and mental impressions. They still had liking, disliking, but they didn't get lost in the liking, disliking. They knew what the Buddha called the middle way. They knew clearly the reality of all these sense objects, knew that they were all unstable, changing, unsatisfactory, and selfless. And that's not a philosophical statement or belief system, but that's what the reality the Buddha pointed to. This is the reality of the sensory world. And so if we seek security, seek identity, seek refuge in that which is inherently unstable, then we're going to end up very disappointed. And that is the case. The, the world as it is today has never seen such affluence and he has never seen such an escalating rate of suicide, presumably. And statistics, of course, don't go that far back, but certainly the collective level of anxiety that's around these days and the statistics recording the increasing rate of suicide are very sad. And, and that is the predicament, really, of the situation where people commit themselves to seeking security by following, cultivating, refining down preferences. There is never any real security in that. It's not a safe refuge. Whereas from the perspective of the Buddha's realization, purified awareness is productive. It still takes a lot of energy, a lot of work, a lot of very hard work. Very, very hard work, but potentially can be very productive. So as we engage in this work and we have the various teachings and techniques that have been passed down to us and very fortunate to have had the example of our teachers and encouragement that they give us and to use these tools skillfully and like the precepts, how to use them skillfully and meditation, how to use it skillfully. If we don't use these tools skillfully, well, they don't have the results that we were looking for. In meditation, one of the primary benefits or primary effects of right meditation is that it helps us withdraw from our addiction to distraction. When the heart, when awareness is untrained, we're compulsively distracting ourselves from the natural consequence of unawareness, which is suffering. The natural consequence of unawareness is suffering. It's perfectly appropriate, perfectly normal, that when we're not seeing clearly, when the heart is distorted, when awareness is polluted by greed, hatred and delusion, and our actions are based on that, those motivations, then it's perfectly understandable that we struggle. And if we don't know better, then we just try to distract ourselves from the struggle. And most of what humanity refers to as culture is really just sophisticated strategies of 
distracting ourselves from that struggle. And it becomes an addiction. And we don't even know we're doing it. And since so many people are doing it, we think it's perfectly normal. But if we somehow start to suspect that it's not the only alternative, like the Buddha when he was 29, looking around at all the options and this great question, this great doubt arose in his mind. Say, is there an alternative to this? Although it manifests as doubt, it's also an expression of faith. Doubt and faith are two sides of the same thing. They work together. Well, they can do if we hold them skillfully. So meditation has the potential for supporting us as we withdraw from that distraction addiction. Cease from struggling to find security by following our preferences, by rearranging the sense objects, and cultivating a sense of orientation towards that spacious, selfless, just-knowing awareness we call the refuge in the Buddha. And this meditation introduces us to, and most of us anyway would be familiar with, the, the spiritual faculties. Faith, energy, mindfulness, collectedness and discernment. And that's again a big part of our work. Going for refuge to the Buddha involves our identifying these potentials, faith, energy, mindfulness, collectedness and discernment, and, and then honing them down developing our relationship to these potentials rather than our relationship to the gratification or otherwise of our preferences we manage those with the precepts and pay more attention to the spiritual faculties and in the process in particular developing what's and Pali referred to as Indriya Samara sense restraint and the most primary tools of the spiritual life that right kind of holding that right kind of holding for the sake of investigation previously most of us probably all of us for a long time only knew about the two alternatives that again we were just chanting around the Dhamma Chakra Sutta indulging in pleasure Kama Sukhani Yoga and denying pleasure Atta Kilimitani Yoga which again the Buddha went out, this is ultimately unproductive and tedious. But with the right kind of restraint, not indulging and not denying, that's a very initial relationship to the sense objects, just indulging and denying, indulging and denying. Learning this ability to contain our conditioned reactions contain a liking and disliking for the sake of studying just because I like sleeping in in the morning does that mean I should do it go to bed at night I'm going to get up early in the morning so that I can meditate a little bit more before the day gets started and then you wake up in the morning and oh god and roll over and go to sleep it feels so good yeah it feels good but does that mean to say it is good Eating donuts, they look so good. A nice little glaze over them and sparkling hundreds and thousands and a nice little kind of almond drizzle over them. They really look yummy. 
just the right amount of fat and sugar and salt and I could just stuff myself with donuts. It's going to feel so good. That's what it looks like sometimes. can do. But does that mean to say that it is good? So what we like and what we dislike are not a good way of assessing and not a wise way of approaching the sensory realm. We need perspective. How do we get perspective? Well, initially it's with, we use the precepts just to set up boundaries and then mindfulness. But it's this indriya sangra, sensory strength, the ability to say no in the right kind of way. A lot of people don't get this. They just think, well, there's only indulging and denying. They don't understand there's wise containment where you're not indulging, you're not denying in that compulsive way, but you're holding that. It feels like this, yes, I want that donut. Or I don't want to have to talk to that person. Don't want to spend time with them. Can we exercise the discipline of attention so we're able to hold those conditioned impulses to the sense objects and investigate our relationship to them? That's the work of awareness. That's going for refuge to the Buddha. It's not just refining down our consciousness so that we just have pleasant sensory experiences on a subtle level. We can do that, but that's misusing the Buddha's teachings. These teachings that the Buddha gave us, the Buddha was sometimes referred to as the great physician because he dispensed a medicine which had the potential for curing the disease of suffering. But we do need to know how to take the Buddha's medicine, how to apply it in the right way, in the right dose. And it's sometimes the case that medicine has unexpected consequences. You know. But then really we need to prepare ourselves for that, we embark on a journey where we want to discover something new. We really want to awaken. We really want to be liberated. That means we're looking for something we don't have, for something we don't know. So to expect the unexpected is a wise approach. And if we're going to do that, well, part of that is being very careful, being very cautious in how we pick up the training. And many very confused people, which is probably a lot of us, if not all of us, pick up these teachings in the beginning in a way whereby we get it wrong. Personally, I got it so wrong my first year as a monk that it took me at least 10 or 12 years before I started to feel my feet on the ground again. And most of that 10 or 12 years was intensely difficult. In fact, there's no words really for how difficult it can be. And if you get it wrong, you can get it very wrong. But that doesn't mean to say that it's morally wrong. We learn the determination in this journey is to learn from whatever happens. You know, I 
I practice myself and I encourage others begin every day by making the determination as you bow to the shrine, begin the day by saying, whatever happens today, I determine to learn from it. You know, we're disciples of the Buddha. We're on the path of awakening. We want to learn. And everything can teach us. Like that title of one of the books of Ajahn Chah's collected teachings, Everything is Teaching Us. So we're, if we're careful about how we pick up the training, we go gradually. And then even if we do make mistakes and we do increase our suffering rather than find it decreasing, slow down, step back, talk to our friends, our spiritual companions, and make an effort to learn from it. It's not difficult when you pick up these teachings, these meditation instructions, and invest a little energy and discover this beautiful, natural quality of peacefulness that was always there behind all the noise of mental activity. And you, I mean, the first time you discover, you say, wow, this, how come I didn't know about this? How come everybody's not into this? Why would people be doing all the stuff that they do if they knew about this? You know, this beautiful contentment that's there when we focus our attention in correct sort of manner. But if we don't approach it carefully, even when we discover such a natural, utterly appropriate dimension of our own hearts, and we cling to it and we spoil it. If we forget our refuge in the Buddha, if we forget our refuge in awareness itself, then we just engage our old habits of going for refuge to the world, going for refuge to our preferences. So this is agreeable and we cling to it. And so then what a lot of meditators do, they then divide themselves even more deeply than they were before and they take sides with peacefulness against activity. And then they try to get rid of all the mental activity, all the mental noise. They reject and judge all that disturbs them. Now that's misusing the Buddhist teachings. Or, or in, in legal speak, it's an abusive process. That's not using not taking the Buddha's medicine in the way that it was intended. It's like using an antibiotic when in fact you've got a, a viral infection. So it's not, not the right approach. Peacefulness that we can be directed towards with the discipline of attention is there to definitely be enjoyed and to allow it to refresh and energize us according to our ability, the just right amount, and then read what it shows us. When Ajahn Chah was asked how much samadhi is needed for right practice, he said, just enough to read a book. And I reflect on that. What he meant was just enough to be able to decipher the meaning of what you see, to be able to study you know, like enough concentration to read a book means that you can read it and extract the meaning. And likewise with our own hearts and minds and bodies, how can we investigate moment by moment 
and decipher true meaning that leads to letting go and discovering security and real refuge. How can we do that? Well, the right level of samadhi is suitable. So our commitment to the training, our going for refuge to the Buddha, if we're approaching it in a suitable way, then little by little we are likely to find a feeling of contentment arising in just knowing the moment, what's happening here and now. Instead of the emphasis being on rearranging or manipulating the sight, sound, smells, taste, touches and mental impressions, which is the worldly pursuit, instead of that emphasis, redirecting attention towards the quality of knowing. Maybe little by little discovering what in Pali is referred to as nipita. Nipita is sometimes described as world weariness. It's not the same as boredom in the sense that boredom carries with it a negative association and a quality of aversion, but it's just like, well, that doesn't work anymore. When you, as a child, you do certain things that are natural for children to do, but as you grow up, you say, well, that's, that's just not worth believing and that's just not worth following. That's not productive. And this inner journey, this inner work, similarly, if we're applying the teachings in a skillful, careful, patient, gradual way, then our attention is more likely to be drawn towards, naturally drawn towards selfless, spacious, just knowing awareness. It's not even something that we have to do. We set ourselves up, we make the effort, we make the statement of Buddhang Saranagachami, I go for refuge to the Buddha. But the actual application of attention, the actual exercise, is really an investment of energy that investigates our relationship to the world. It's not judging the world, it's not taking sides for or against the world, it's getting interested and the reality of the world. So thank you very much this evening for your attention.